Hi everyone, welcome back to China in the Caribbean. In this episode, I'll be talking with Evan Ellis on the view from the U.S. on Chinese security engagement in the Caribbean. Dr. Ellis is a research professor of Latin American studies at the U.S. Army War College and a senior associate at the Center of Strategic and International Studies in Washington D.C. Also. Dr. Ellis previously served on the U.S. Secretary of State's policy planning staff, with responsibility for Latin America and the Caribbean. So he's a perfect guest for this conversation, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. scenarios. So the Monroe Doctrine uh, is very often invoked in the Caribbean every time you have a conversation about U.S. and America, U.S. engagement in the Caribbean or anywhere else in the, in the hemisphere. But you have a, a non-typical interpretation that doesn't really rest on these imperialist terms that we normally use it as. So how how do we、uh, properly assess the at least the intent of the of the Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere? Absolutely, and I appreciate you beginning with the question. I remember that I was there when、uh, then Secretary of State、uh, John Kerry, in front of the Organization of American States,、uh, announced that the Obama administration was、uh, setting aside、uh, definitively the、uh, U.S. adherence to the Monroe Doctrine. And I remember the type of enthusiastic reception that it got. But for me, the historic context of the Monroe Doctrine is often misunderstood. So, if you remember that at the time that the doctrine was proclaimed, 1823,、um, the U.S. had just gone through the War of 1812. In which、uh, the British, of course, had burned down the capital and, and give us a pretty serious lesson about the dangers still posed by、uh, European interventionism. At the same time, of course, the、uh, various uh, different uh, movements for independence and, and wars were just getting off the, the ground. Of, we think of people,、uh, you know, like、uh, Simon Bolivar and just a range of, of different、um, inspirations for those. And within the thinking about ind- independence, you have to remember that、uh, because. Our own revolutionary uh, movement, uh, people like、uh, Thomas Jefferson, who themselves had been inspired by people like、uh, Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau, the、uh, it wasn't that far behind that、uh, that the U.S. had.、Um, Put forth those very important ideas about democracy, and I think in many ways it saw itself as still in the position to want to contribute to the debate of these new democratic movements. At the same time, again, I think there was certainly an understanding of a desire to have solidarity, at least within our friends in the hemisphere,、uh, against the Europeans,、uh, against whom at the, the time the United States、uh, clearly felt that、uh, you know it, it had its own、uh, very difficult experiences. At least with the British,、uh, you know, it was still relatively on, on good terms with, with the. French. Obviously, there was probably、uh, some hubris. Of course,、uh, the United States had,、uh, you know, not too many years earlier, about twenty years earlier, completed the Louisiana Purchase, and we were still coming to grips with the dramatic expansion and size of our new nation. But in many ways, I think it's important to understand the way in which, at the time, the Monroe Doctrine was seen as really a common stance, both intellectually in terms of security, that we saw ourselves as part of the Americas, contributing to the Americas, and, and wanting to have a voice in. It being about the Americas for the Americans, of which we consider ourselves part. Okay, so we shouldn't think of it originally as a a sign of imperialism. I, I guess that kind of holds up because I, I believe in the night in the eighteen sixties, the U.S. invoked the Monroe Doctrine when they were trying to help、uh, President Juarez in Mexico. I think they were trying to defeat the the French who were who had installed a puppet government in Mexico at the time, and that it was about the whole American solidarity against the European powers. I suppose that 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 does make sense. Well, absolutely, and, and of course,、uh, you know, really the the Pan Americanism that eventually、uh, gave rise to the organization of American states,、uh, you know, really played out over a, a century, but.、Um, Clearly, for at least in, in in my way of looking at it,、um, you have to recall that 
the, for example, Spanish-American War and really the, the sense of, of the U.S. as, as a true power uh, did not come, become apparent for another, you know, perhaps uh, 80 years. And so I, I think at that time, I mean, while clearly there was a sense of U.S. exceptionalism and manifest destiny and, and certainly, as I indicated, hubris, I, I think it's fair to say that the U.S. in general saw itself as sharing common ideas and really a common identity within the Americas and perhaps a sense of, of a common threat having had its own experience with uh, European meddling, whether, you know, that from, you know, the, the British or, or elsewhere. So what happened along the way? Because at least recently, the Monroe Doctrine is almost this battle cry for, you know, semi-hegemonic intent in the hemisphere from from the U.S. And it's not because... It's not just that Caribbean people or Latin American people use that term to, in, in almost synonymous with hegemonic intent. You see think tankers in the U.S. You see uh, politicians in the U.S. use the term as well. So I'm wondering how it moved from this American um, solidarity type slogan to this um, hegemonic intent slogan. No, it's it's a good point, and you know clearly uh, the Monroe Doctrine and the way that it was seen uh, evolved a great deal from 1823 to um, you know the growing uh, U.S. role in in the hemisphere and elsewhere uh, throughout history, and so I, I think little by little, um, especially as the United States uh, began to you know see itself as having you know perhaps a more powerful role in the hemisphere, um, and turning uh, again largely in the 20th century uh, towards uh, you know first of all. Uh, wanting to assert, uh, you know, a, a greater role um, in terms of the, the ongoings of the hemisphere. But, you know, frankly, uh, you know, later with respect to uh, World War II and some of the threats uh, presented by, by fascism and, and afterwards, of course, the Cold War, um, the uh, interventionism by, by the Soviet Union. I think again and again, when the United States continued to talk about that idea of, of wanting to keep external powers out of the hemisphere, there was a, a subtle transformation. And clearly for the region, even though the United States perhaps was not as self-aware of the way in which its words were seen differently as its power grew in the region. But certainly from a regional perspective, um, those U.S. acts uh, probably came to be seen um, in, a, in, in a different light. So I, I think it's, it was a matter of similar language. And I, I don't think the U.S. fully realized the degree to which um, the way it was seen was changing in the hemisphere. Because again, we were coming from the perspective of the sense of the good and the democracy that uh, that we were trying to put forth, um, which uh, is always an easy mistake to make when when one is a, a rising, uh, increasingly a powerful state. So one of the under discussed uh, activities that China had in the Caribbean was in episode four when they sent peacekeepers in the UN peacekeeping mission to Haiti, and. I believe that's the very first time that China had any kind of military, paramilitary engagement in uh, the Caribbean region. So is there something we can look at there to see how China will in the future do more engagement in the region? Or even why was the, what was the rationale that China decided to uh, send peacekeepers to Haiti uh, of all places? Great question. I think on the U.S. side, clearly, um, when uh, the Chinese included the uh, their their military police in the Minnesota peacekeeping force, it did get a lot of examination in Washington and, and I suspect uh, at, at the Pentagon. However, uh, when I look at it from a Chinese perspective, I understand it as a logical progression of an increasingly global uh, and increasingly um, uh, powerful and, and modernizing PLA. And of course, at the time, uh, the Chinese, uh, first of all, had begun to recognized not too long before of the importance of engaging with and not staying outside of international institutions such as the United Nations. Now, as the Chinese did, especially in places like Africa, where they had special relationships, having participated in anti-colonial struggles there, it was logical that the Chinese contributed uh, peacekeeping forces uh, to various different uh, um, uh, places in, in Africa, especially given that Chinese companies were often on the ground in sectors such as petroleum and in mining. So when in another part of the world um, there was a, a, a problem, um, it seemed a, a logical extension. Also, it's important to recall uh, two things. First of all, um, China had just joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. So it was a period of time when China was seen um, 
as not necessarily an adversary of the United States. There was still a good debate in, in Washington whether uh, you know China, although there were reasons for concern, um, could perhaps be taken in a more democratic uh, road, uh, certain uh, behaviors of concern could, could be reformed. So, and also China uh, had just, uh, at least the Hong Kong-based uh, company, uh, Hutchison Wampoa, through Hutchison Port Holdings, had just um, taken control not uh, too many years before of uh, two port operations in Cristobal and Balboa in Panama. Um, and while there was a little bit of reaction in Washington, it wasn't um, you know that significant. And so on the one hand, um, for China to move from peacekeeping in Africa to peacekeeping in Latin America didn't seem like that much of a provocative step, arguably, for China. At the same time, also, this was during a period of time in which uh, there was a uh, an evolution of diplomatic recognition from uh, various states recognizing Taiwan to switching over to recognize the PRC, uh, first across South America and increasingly uh, in the Caribbean. So it wasn't that many years before, for example, that the Bahamas had changed their um, relations. And so in that context, when Haiti was in the context of having political unrest, the prospect of significant political change, having previously recognized Taiwan, this was an opportunity, I believe, in the minds of the Chinese to put boots on the ground to help bring uh, order to, to Haiti and perhaps in the process uh, impose a little bit of pressure and a little bit of friendly help that maybe they hoped could flip Haiti from Taiwan to the PRC. Now, obviously, uh, China in many ways uh, guessed wrong with respect to that. Um, it, the, uh, there were some difficulties uh, with the Chinese peacekeepers themselves. There were multiple uh, challenges in the overall mission. The mission ended up arguably uh, being much longer than was anticipated. Of course, with the, the terrible uh, 2010 earthquake, you actually had uh, the first Chinese military casualties on Latin American soil in, in modern history. A, a total of uh, eight died when uh, basically um, one of the ministry buildings uh, collapsed as, as well as, uh, as, well as uh, uh, Chinese peacekeepers on the ground. And so it was interesting that in 2012, amidst a increasingly tense environment uh, between China and the United States and increasing attention to that, um, you know, to China's role in the Americas, one could argue that by that point, A, it was clear that the Chinese hopes of you know, flipping the relationship in, in Haiti, especially while the diplomatic truce was in place between China and the uh, government, the uh, Guomindang government, um, I'm sorry, the, um, the DPP government in, in Taiwan, wasn't going to happen. It was beginning to look increasingly like a, a costly operation. It was beginning to increasingly look like a, a source of alarm in terms of China's military presence in the hemisphere. And so China in 2012, after those eight years uh, in, in Haiti, quietly pulled out. Again, I think with some successes, with some valuable learning, but arguably without having uh, achieved the probably key things that led it to want to be part of it in the first place. So do you see something like this happening again? Uh, Chinese police, for example, are in Serbia, in, I believe, Belgrade, and they help the police force there to patrol the city because there's so many Chinese tourists and Belgrade police force can't really interact with the tourists and you know the typical reasons and there are some Caribbean countries like Trinidad or Jamaica that have you know pretty severe crime issues and definitely a non-trivial amount of Chinese tourists and Chinese population kind of settle there in those countries and the governments there have been complaining for some time about the uh, inadequate nature of their own police force. So I think that it's, not, it's definitely not inconceivable that you can see more Chinese police presence in, in, in the Caribbean. Of course, Latin America, Central America, uh, for similar reasons. So how, how do you see that playing out? Do you think that's like a realistic uh, near-term uh, scenario? Well, it's an interesting question. And let me start out with a little bit of context. Uh, so when you go back to the 2008 uh, China policy white paper toward Latin America and the more elaborate uh, 2016 version of the paper, uh, China clearly says that it is interested in uh, broadening both military as, as well as uh, security relations in the Americas. You find the same thing actually in the 2015 uh, China defense policy white paper as well as the 2019 uh, version, which was recently made public. Uh, what has happened is that China recognizes, among other things, that 
as uh, it has an increasingly significant footprint on the ground with respect to its companies and, and its people, uh, clearly looking towards, for example, um, in Libya in 2011, when it had to evacuate personnel there, uh, and later uh, in, in, in Yemen, that that increasing global footprint, as happens with, with any globally uh, in, engaged power, uh, puts Chinese people in harm's way. If you look, for example, at the Wolf Warrior movies, uh, popular in, in, in Chinese culture, in many ways, uh, you know, the Chinese version of Rambo, it's that recognition of the the need uh, that China has to you know, defend and, and stick up for its its personnel around the world. And so, not surprisingly, uh, you do find um, interest. As a matter of fact, uh, when things were getting uh, very bad in, in Venezuela, as far back as is 2012, I remember having interesting conversations with some of my Chinese academic colleagues about the subject of uh, what would China do if it had to do a non-combatant evacuation operation from Venezuela. Of course, at the time, you had uh, murder rates in Caracas, astronomical, you know, upwards of, of 200, um, you know, 200 people per, uh, per, per 100,000. Now, in that context, uh, the security cooperation has already taken place, is already deepening. So, you know, on the military side, you know, regularly, just about all of the defense forces that recognize the PRC, we can talk about the Surinamese Defense Force, the Guyana Defense Force, the, you know, Trinidad Defense Force, the Royal Barbadian Defense Force, they all sir they all send they all send you know their senior officers and other people to china sometimes it's just the three week training courses um uh, in champing sometimes it's some of the more extensive command and general staff courses in nanjing and outside of nanjing sometimes it's it's other programs um also they've increasingly begun to develop um cooperation initiatives with respect to police. And so in some cases, it's the donation of equipment. So I think uh, in the case of uh, Guyana, the Guyana Police Force, they they donated a couple of years ago uh, a series of uh, equipment, again, in Trinidad and Tobago. I recall uh, your Chinese donation of motorcycles. I think in Guyana, it was actually uh, uh, Chinese brand um, police vehicles. But in addition to that, what you're seeing, um, and indeed, if you look at the uh, the 2019-2021 China SELAC roadmap, which was actually published by the Brazilian Ministry of Defense, they explicitly say, yes, we intend to increase cooperation in these things. Now, in other places already, such as, for example, Argentina, where I think in 2015, the Chinese brought in national police against uh, the, uh, the the Chinese triad Pichue, which was causing problems in, basically around the um, Belgrano, Palermo, the greater Buenos Aires area. In Panama, the Chinese actually, after they established um, diplomatic relationships, uh, uh, actually, again, began to coordinate with the, with the Panamanian police. And one of the problems that you have right now in the Caribbean is on the one side, you have an increasing Chinese footprint. I mean, you know, think about the numerous different construction projects as well as the operation of, of tourism projects, etc. Um, and on the other hand, there is very little visibility by Latin American states uh, into Chinese communities, of which uh, there are a number of substantial, especially, you know, Suriname, which has a, you know, a, a very large uh, Chinese population relative to its population, uh, Guyana to a certain degree uh, elsewhere. Um, and how many Caribbean police you know, speak Hakka or speak Cantonese, you know, let alone speak the official you know, Mandarin. How many have personnel who can effectively penetrate Chinese communities? I've heard stories where um, when uh, people come to, uh, when the police try to take reports and uh, there are people brought in to be translators, the translators are actually in the employ of the, the local gangs and actually threatening rather than, um, you know, helping the, the witnesses. And so in that environment where you have Chinese companies and uh, relative uh, holes in terms of the understanding of Chinese organized crime in, in Chinese communities, there is a certain logic of increased cooperation. However, with that logic, you're going to have you know, increasing discomfort as well, because uh, that implies, you know, giving the PRC increased visibility kind of, you know, under the blanket, if you will, about certain aspects of, you know, the uh, Caribbean societies and government, uh, you know, who's got dirt on who, you know, who's worried about who being corrupt, you know, who's being investigated for what, that, um, you know, could be, frankly, a competitive advantage if that went through the Chinese police and found its way into the hands of Chinese companies trying to uh, to win the, the latest, uh, you know, bid for a construction project in that country. You mentioned earlier about the uh, China, Latin America, and Caribbean white paper, where they did talk about, you know, potential security collaboration. Uh, from a U.S. perspective, uh, how, how 
realistic do you think it is that China would want to establish some kind of military outpost or military base in the Caribbean? You know, eventually one in Djibouti. And if it is kind of have a material realistic uh, outcome, what scenario do you see that happening under? It's a great question. And as I have followed uh, the evolution of, of Chinese economic engagement and, and military engagement over the past 16 years that I've follow, followed this, I've become increasingly convinced that uh, China sees it as very much counterproductive at the moment in you know this current generation to pursue military bases. On the one hand, it really is not in a position where it expects or is in a position to conduct a war fight of any type, you know, especially not against the U.S. Um, in the Western Hemisphere. And on the other hand, I think China has always been very worried about provoking the United States. If Chinese scholars uh, know one thing in their brief primer about the Caribbean, uh, it's that, uh, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis almost led to major problems for the Soviet Union. And so I, I think there's a, an understanding that, especially in the Caribbean, one has to be cautious. Now, Having said that, uh, when you say, well, what are the Chinese really trying to do? And if you look at a map of China and you recognize that China's maritime projection going through the states of, Straits of Malacca into the rest of the world, China looks at its first island chain especially and, and more broadly and understands the importance of its southeastern maritime approaches. So you look at a map of the Western Hemisphere and lo and behold, um, you have this terribly important in logistics and commercial terms, Southeast maritime approaches to the United States, that is the, the Caribbean. So I think China instinctively understands the importance of being in that space in terms of economic position and investment and trade and influence, but tries to do so in a way that doesn't provoke the United States. Now, as I indicated before, you do find low-key but significant Chinese military engagement across the region. Every single one of the three uh, three trips by the, the Chinese uh, hospital ship Peace Arc that has come through the region has made at least one, if not multiple, Caribbean stops, usually more with each one. Um, again, China's first uh, major deployment of military police, as we talked before, was in Haiti, in the Caribbean. China looks at where five of the nine states within the region that still recognize uh, Taiwan are. They're in the Caribbean, if you, if you count police. Uh, China... You know, looks at if if you look at the, you know where China has done the you know the police donations that we talked about before where it has done the military donations um, you know the number of people that it, it brings over over to Champing to the special schools proportionate to the, to the population um, China spends a, a lot of time being in that space now there is a broader longer range piece which is that you know would China someday somehow do offensive military operations. And of course, you know, just as, you know, both the United States and the, um, you know, the Chinese, you know, people who are responsible for, you know, the defense of, of, of our countries have to think about future wars. And so as someone who has worked for DOD my entire career, I, you know, am absolutely confident and certain that there are those within the PLA thinking about if we ever had to fight a global war fight, you know, how would we do it? We're not just going to let the United States play an away game and, you know, send our carriers in and you know, South and East China Sea. They think about, you know, first of all, you know, how can we use our economic power to have more diplomatic leverage to keep the nations, especially the many voting sovereign nations of the Caribbean, from you know, supporting this in various different international organizations. Number two, if it comes to war anyway, um, how can we do things to monitor what the U.S. is doing in terms of deploying from the many bases um, and ports of embarkation which are you know in the vicinity of the Caribbean? Uh, we only have to remember the history of, of World War II and uh, you know when the the merchant ship convoys came out of the Gulf of Paria and, and had to be carefully protected lest they be the, the prey of, of Nazi U-boats with our um, and our, our, our Brazilian friends as well as the British helped helped us out with um, with some of those things. But thinking through all of that, um, if you really think dark thoughts and you say that in a future war in say 2030, when by current projections the Chinese Navy might have 600 capital ships, including multiple aircraft carriers with significantly enhanced capabilities, um, much of which they will have stolen from us, of course. Um, and reciprocally, the United States Navy might be down to say 270 ships or, or, or so. That if in the opening gambit of a major war in Asia, which we all hope doesn't happen, but you know, 
People have to plan for these things. Um, you know, if the United States lost several aircraft carriers and other major capital ships, maybe an amphibious ship, and, and suddenly it was starting to look like the United States really had its nose bloodied and um, this war is going to stretch out longer than, than expected, um, I would venture that uh, there are those people in that future when the Chinese uh, GDP was perhaps twice that of the United States and its military, you know, twice as big in, in you know, asset terms that um, we're willing to say, you know, we're going to bet the United States is going to call a tie and, and go home. And so when the Chinese come in, um, you know, whether it's a future government in Venezuela or who says and said, um, you know, just like we did in Djibouti, we'd like to have peaceful access for the resupply of our peaceful, you know, naval vessels uh, in your, there'd be a certain number of states that might consider it. And, and oh, by the way, if they did that, the question then becomes, you know, not whether the Chinese in 2021 are looking for military bases, but if in 2030, in that context, they suddenly said, um, you know, we have permission or coerced our way into doing this, how long would it take to set up an operationally effective capability when you already have Hutchison operating in the region, when you already have China Harbor with a deep understanding of the specs, when you already have Huawei understanding the infrastructure throughout the region, when you already have countless other Chinese companies, when you already have the entire generation of, of Caribbean defense and security officials who have traveled in one way or another through institutional exchanges to um, Champagne, to, to other places. And so you don't need to have military bases. You just need to have good relationships and a disposition to be able to take advantage of that situation quickly if you have to in, in the future. And it's entirely consistent with the way that, you know, famous you know, Chinese such as Sun Tzu talked about war, you know, not about showing your capabilities, but, you know, being able to, um, you know, act in, in a certain way, you know, after having, you know, calmed your enemy. So it's, uh, anyway, that's my that's my uh, my my. Uh, those are some of the dark thoughts that uh, as, as I try to think about uh, hemispheric security that um, I, I am worried about. But uh, that doesn't mean that in the current term, the you know nature of Chinese engagement is not you know principally commercial, and that oh by the way, um, you know if done through the perspective of strong institutions and transparency, that good things can be gotten from from that engagement. But bad things can come of it if it's done in a bad, non-transparent, non-corrupt way as well. One of the more colorful stories about China-Caribbean engagement of recent, or China-Caribbean Central America engagement, was the headlines about China building a, a canal through Nicaragua to compete with the Panama Canal. This also is very similar to these headline stories about uh, China wants to build a Panama in Kra in Thailand to compete with the Malacca Strait. You know, these are all uh, U.S. choke points. Uh, so could you give some background on the China uh, Canal whole debacle in Nicaragua? And on top of that, is it actually realistic that China would want to build a canal to compete economically with uh, Panama? It's a great question. And I love the story of the Nicaragua Canal because for me, the real story is so much different than the way it's commonly seen. Um, and it so nicely illustrates what I think is instinctively understood about the nature of Chinese penetration in the Caribbean and elsewhere. So really, this did not start out as a you know Chinese government plot, to the best of my understanding, but rather you had a you know one of the um, you know well-to-do sons of, of Daniel Ortega, um, uh, Loriano Ortega specifically, uh, who was uh, you know looking to use China to promote Nicaraguan investment as part of uh, his his then um, you know job with the Nicaraguan uh, Trade Promotion Organization, and somewhere along the way, Loriano uh, met up with one of these brilliant young uh, you know thirty-something. Uh, Chinese millionaires, Wang Jing, who happened to have made a whole lot of money um, in support of the People's Liberation Army, basically with his software company, Xinhui, producing middleware for them. And so obviously he had lots of confidence, very rich at a very young age. And I can imagine their conversation going something like this, with Loriana Ortega talking about how, well, you know, Nicaragua dreamed of having a canal and it was a centuries-long dream. And wouldn't it be a great thing if, if, if the grand power and construction firms and resources of, of China could be put in that order? 
And I'm sure that uh, Wang Jing said, well, clearly, you know, I have ties with these important Chinese construction companies and financing companies and good ties high in the Chinese government. We could make that happen. And I'm sure at some point, Loriana Ortega started talking about, well, my dad is Daniel Ortega and my mom, um, and talking about the control that the Sandinistas had over the Nicaraguan Congress and their ability to basically push through anything that was necessary to make this project happen. A classic win-win, as the Chinese like to put it. So... When I think about this, and I think of so many other projects that you know about throughout the Caribbean, if we think about, uh, you know, uh, you know, Circus Esmirlan, for whom things did not work out so well in the Bahamas with uh, with, with Bahamar and, and various others, there's always that trade-off. Um, the local leaders with a good political connection and, and knowledge wanting to sell that to the Chinese firm to make themselves rich as the Chinese partner, the Chinese looking for opportunities to leverage those local connections and, and local power to come in um, both for strategic reasons and, and to make a lot of money. Now, what happened, though, with the Nicaraguan Canal, first of all, given some of the photos that appeared on the internet with respect to uh, who Wang Jing was seen with uh, in terms of the you know, former Chinese leadership and current Chinese leadership, and, and again, the fact that he'd made all of his money basically from you know, PLA contracts, um, I'm highly confident that he at least checked with the government to see if they had any problem with it. And the fact that he proceeded forward is, in my mind, a reflection of the fact that um, you know, they didn't have any problems that would make them want to stop him. On the other hand, the fact that uh, Nicaragua currently did not recognize uh, the PRC uh, probably meant there was a, okay, go forward with your canal. If it works out, we'll jump behind you. And if not, we never had this conversation. So what happened, though, is that it was... Uh, Kind of like uh, what in uh, U.S. lore is the uh, the fable of, of three-stone soup, where you try to get everyone else to pitch in their money to achieve something out of, out, out of nothing. And so there was a big effort on the front end of the project to convince people that this was real and a serious investment. I mean, I, I remember from the very, very beginning, uh, they hired uh, one of the, the very best consulting firms in Washington, D.C., McClarty uh, & Associates. They brought in a study from the very well-respected McKinsey organization, which, oh, by the way, had very strong business interests in China that I'm sure that they uh, didn't want to, to undercut. They hired a local Washington, D.C.-based PR firm. Um, they even hired the head of uh, what was called a Transparency International in Bolivia, a very, very well-respected uh, Bolivian uh, politician, Ronald McLean, uh, who um, I always felt probably the deeper he got involved in the project, uh, although he couldn't say it, probably the deeper he came to regret having gotten you know sucked into it, given his own just high you know stature and in, in, in ethics. But what happened over time was that despite all of the maneuvering, um, you know. Western investors weren't stupid. They could look at Nicaragua. They could say, there's not enough transparency here. There's not enough rule of law here. And so um, it became clear that the only way that this was going to happen was that the Chinese uh, financial backers were going to put in their own money. And when that wasn't happening, um, then other maneuverings started to, to come around. So for example, um, the Nicaraguans... Uh, had you know absolute power of eminent domain to you know do a taking of, of wherever they said that they needed to to build the canal, and so one of the early spots was um, in Brito on on the Pacific coast. Uh, mysteriously, um, my understanding is that uh, people affiliated with Daniel Ortega began uh, buying a lot of property. So you know suddenly when Brito was going to be one of the major hubs of the Panama Canal, well, who owned the land but the or Ortega family? But overall. It went on and it was stalled and it was, um, you know, every reason, including the, you know, some of the environmental concerns, but it finally got to the point where it was, it was clear they'd spent all the money and done all the preliminary studies and they either had to move forward with the really expensive stuff, essentially starting to, you know, clear land and dig, or they needed to just stop and say, you know, this was all a ruse. And so there was a, a critical point about 2016 after the approval of the last environmental study when the excuses had gone away, when they just stopped talking about it. Now, the question then becomes, you know, could there be a Nicaraguan canal in the future, etc.? Um, there are problems with the concept. Um, you know, number one is you basically have an 163-kilometer transit, uh, a multi-hour transit, which is essentially a one-way highway if, if you look at the, the size of the ships that they would be taking through. Um, and 
Anybody who's ever been trapped eight hours on a road in Latin America without a passing lane, um, you know, can only imagine the nightmare. And so there are severe capacity limitations inherent to at least the design that they were using. Um, also, I suspect that it's not going to happen until there's enough post-Panamax size ships to justify the approximately $1.3 million per ship transit that they would need to charge to, to break even on, on, the, on the calculated costs. And frankly, uh, how, it's probably... How many post-Panamax ships are they, are they now? It, well, and I don't have the, the, the figures in, in front of me, but I, I recall it was, um, it was, I believe, several thousand because uh, the, Panama, the Panama Canal, um, the, the big ships, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the, the post-Panamax that started going through the third set of locks, I believe they were charging around, uh, around $400,000 per transit. So it's a pretty expensive transit. It's, it's by ship size. But so what you're really, really saying is you really have to go for the high-end traffic to really, because you, you know, you can't put enough little ships through with that, concept, you have to get a lot of money out of the great big ships, which can only go through in limited amounts. And that's, that's the only way that you can that you can really make it pay. And at the end of the day, if you look at the statistics, for example, Panama informally estimates that at least pre-COVID that um, with increasing container traffic across the Pacific, that sometime around 2025, the third set of locks in Panama is going to be at their limits. Um, now, Panama had long had the opportunity to build their own fourth set of, of locks, which could have accommodated things much more quickly and much more cheaply than a Nicaraguan canal ever could. The big question there, however, is whether there's enough water, even with super water recycling capabilities in Lake Gaitun. And if that can't happen, then you basically have a restriction on what Panama can do, and you open up a possibility, especially in an area where there is more container traffic, um, and, you know, perhaps in that era, you know, five years or 10 years from now, you have a, a Nicaragua which recognizes the PRC um, and maybe a U.S. government which is a little bit more timid about uh, pushing back. And so could it happen in the future under those three conditions? I think it's possible. Does it make economic sense? Not yet. Um, anything could make economic sense in, in, in the future, but I don't think it's entirely unreal. But I think right now it was a bit of a shell game, which I think more than anything else tells a story about the relationships between Chinese businessmen and local businessmen more than it tells a story about a, a, a geopolitical gambit. Although, having said that, I, I will say that if you look at China's view of the world um, and its control over, you know, sea lines of communication and, and worry about, you know, getting access to market and sources of supply. Um, you know, China sees the world radiating out from, you know, for example, solving the problem of the Straits of Malacca by by developing other options in Asia. And then, you know, as you move farther out, for example, the transits to Africa, you look at the Suez Canal, uh, which is, you know, one of the reasons why from the very beginning, as China moved into out-of-area operations, it started looking at counter-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia, and then, you know, built its first ever military base in Djibouti. But as you move into the Western Hemisphere, that farthest away series of choke points, um, you know, which is, you know, frankly, uh, you know, Central America, the question then becomes, um, you know, just in the same way that, that China has wanted to get away from depending on, you know, one choke point, the Strait of Malacca, through a diversified series of, of other kind of political highways, you know, Belt and Road, um, China also, you know, looks at the Panama Canal and it doesn't want to put its eggs in that basket. And so, um, I think strategically, it's it, intriguing to China to have a second option, not necessarily for military uh, reasons, so much as basically China's strategy of managing global choke points for, for global commerce. If I remember correctly, China also invested a lot of money in the Kingston port in Jamaica. Uh, a lot of the, because a lot of the ships now coming through the Panama Canal, you know, post Panama's, that they actually cannot fit into the U.S. ports or the, uh, the so they so they have to go to uh, Jamaica first, and then they would unpack and then repack onto smaller ships, and then these smaller ships now would go to Miami or go to New York or or so on. So that that, that, that does seem to be a pretty active strategy on, on Chinese part. Absolutely. I mean, and this goes back to the deeper point that the Caribbean is a land of flows and is a strategic crossroads. So, yeah, if you look at all of the traffic that's coming through the Pacific, these um, these very large, you know, now post-Panax vessels with some even looking to go up to maybe 30,000 TEU at, at some point, which is just incredible. Um, the problem is that you 
it's both not commercially viable and it's not really physically possible to get into some of these ports because you have bridge limitations and, and other things. And so anybody who's ever flown into, for example, Miami knows the concept of the hub and spoke system. You, uh, you, know, you move people in the, in the big planes, in, in the long trips, and then once you get them close to where you want to be, you take the little trunk airlines and, and you, you get them there. And so, as you pointed out, exactly the same thing happens in the Caribbean. So you come through the Panama Canal. Then the question is, um, you know, where do we have a logistics staging area, a big capable port that we can come into with a big ship in a deep water berth, um, offload onto all the little ships, then conserve um, all the ports in the southeast of the United States from, you know, Miami, Newport, Baltimore, New York, et cetera, and down the east coast of South America, you know, as, as well, um, you know, including, you know, Guyana, Suriname, you know, Paramaribo, but, but also, you know, the northeast coast of Brazil, down to Argentina, et cetera. And so there's this huge competition underway about, you know, who owns the hubs. So, you know, is it going to be, you know, so for, for a time, of course, uh, you know, Hutchison Poa built their major uh, major hub with supporting operations in in Freeport. Um, although that's run into hard times later, um, and you know, of course, you know, Miami for a long time wanted to be you know make sure that it was going to be the major regional hub. Panama wanted to be the major hub. Um, you know, everyone and and there's a whole kind of fascinating relationship between um, you know who actually operates the port. Um, you know, so what are the logistics companies? Um, what are the um, you know operator companies? And then, of course, what are the shipping company? Who's moving the boxes? And so, you know, because you know you have you know China shipping, which gives them enormous leverage. Um, and so, whose port does China shipping go into? And so, you get this multiple source of leverage where China's demand and China shipping company become this huge hammer for advancing its its position. So, you know, you want your country to be the hub port that all the boxes come into and there's lots of, you know, port jobs and lots of shipping jobs and, and lots of jobs to build the port. Well, then, um, you know, if you want that, then, you know, you better think about using the Chinese company or you better think about giving the operation to the Chinese port operator um, because the Chinese port operator, you hope, will be able to attract the Chinese company, you know, China shipping to use their port. And so, yeah, for a long time in, in Jamaica, there's been this big fight with China merchant port holding, finally getting the, the port of Kingston and promising a $2.7 billion massive expansion. Um, you know, will that happen? But at the same time, you have the Dominicans, and there was the hope that, you know, after the Dominican Republic flipped and, and abandoned Taiwan, that, um, you know, first they would build a megaport in Manzanillo, and, and maybe now they'll build a little megaport in, in Casado. Um, and, you know, of course, everyone has their hope that they will be the megaport. And the sad thing is that the Chinese are adept at using those hopes and economic leverage of basically getting every government in the Caribbean to compete against each other. So at the end of the day, the win-win is for the Chinese company and, and the locals who, you know, who get a piece of the deal. So there was an interesting discussion in Parliament in Trinidad and Tobago a couple of weeks ago. The government was, I believe, considering to lease the uh, Port of Spain port or some port in Trinidad to a Chinese firm. And then, of course, the opposition party was very much against the idea. But the opposing arguments aren't really very good. They kind of use the the habentota fallacy uh, pretty much throughout the argument. So I do wonder if... Okay, I do wonder, do you think that over time, the way that we interact with Chinese port operators is more it's going to be more similar to how we interact like Dubai our DP world the Dubai port world uh, company which operates you know over 40 ports internationally and there's very little suspicion when it comes to DP world operating your domestic port but so much when it comes to China so how do you do you think there's going to be a shift going towards a more DP world perception of the Chinese port operations, uh, particularly Latin American and Caribbean? Great question. And I think there's, there's two questions. Uh, first, because you you, uh, you said it first, um, um, 
I think the Han Wantota story is a fascinating story, but it's one of those misunderstood stories about China. Because what happened, I think, uh, with your own scholarship in China that, that you also know well, is that it, it, it's another one of these stories like Loriana Ortega and Wang Jing, where the party in power um, – had an opportunity basically using government loan commitments to have the Chinese come in and build this huge other port in an area in which their supporters were giving. So the jobs were going to go, at least the, the local jobs, to the supporters of the government party in power. Um, and, you know, okay, oh, by the way, it would go to a Chinese port and, you know, probably lots of people made lots of money on the side. But it's like, okay, whether this is actually a viable port because you had a perfectly good port and you know all commercial projections said that you can't make it with two ports in in the same area um but the government did the deal in a relatively non-transparent fashion for their own political interests it was a win-win for the local elites and for the chinese and they left the problem to the next government to you know and so the next government wasn't necessarily bad but it was they in trying to get out from under this mess that said, okay, well, we don't want to be stuck with this. We have our own social programs and things that we want to do. And so, of course, the Chinese had a solution to the problem that they themselves had created that said, well, you know, this happens to be an area of great strategic interest for, for us, Belt and Road and, and everything else. And so, you know, you give us the extended lease to, to the port and, uh, you know, we'll write off the debt. And the reason I, I wanted to pick up on that, and, and, and I remember the same thing in Trinidad and Tobago, that oftentimes... Um, the Chinese come in as the the rescuers and are leveraging the needs of government, both the political needs and the economic needs. And so, uh, again, Trinidad and Tobago is a fascinating story because, so for example, um, you had the you know the shutdown of Petro Trin, the the refinery, which was going to put five thousand people out of work. Well, suddenly the Chinese suddenly came in and said, um, well, if you give us this space to run as a, as a free trade zone and give us a special dispensation in terms of, of labor and transparency and laws and, and things like that, we promise if you build the infrastructure first um, that we'll bring in all of these Chinese companies. Well, what companies? Well, they didn't tell you exactly what companies that they were going to be. They tried to do the same thing in, in Costa Rica with six FTZs. They, they tried to do the same thing um, in, in, in El Salvador with the port of La, La Union. And so oftentimes there are the needs of the people to work, the needs of the government to give jobs and get investment become sources of, of, of vulnerability. Um, and then to go to the last part of your point, because I think this is also extremely important. Um, sadly, what I see the big difference is, and I have many Chinese friends, so I, I don't disparage you know, the Chinese and, and their you know, right and desire to, to prosper. But I think because the Chinese are so effectively coordinated, just because of the tools that they have through the Communist Party and through their, their shared sense of, of development, being able to coordinate finance in multi-sector programs, all to try to get more business for, for the Chinese. Um, if you're a DP world, um, you know, you're not out to basically get more jobs for Arab countries. You want to make as much money for DP world. And if you have, um, you know, an, an, an ethnic Indian on the board of, of directors or a European or a gringo or whoever, it's whoever can do the best job for, for DP world. Um, what happens, though, is you see this clustering of, of the Chinese where it's, okay, um, you know, if the Chinese company owns the port, how can they then leverage the demand that comes from the prospect of bringing in Chinese shipping to move their boxes from this port versus the other one? Um, then, okay, if they're going to come in and operate the port, then, well, clearly they're going to use Chinese Har China Harbor or some other Chinese company who are then going to use their engineering firms and, and their contractors. And, and so there's a there's a concept of basically trying to use leverage to build the enrichment of the Chinese people. So it, capitalism, however ugly people may find it, is about making the companies rich. Um, Chinese capitalism, I would argue, is very differently because it's using the veneer of capitalism to enrich the Chinese people and the Chinese state, which is great if you're the Chinese people, but... If you're another, you say, you know, the difference between having a DP world and a, you know, a, you know, China Harbor or Hutchison, especially after Hutchison sold out the majority of its interest to, to mainland China, is that if it's DP world operating it, I can, I can basically, whoever is the low cost producer, provider, technically most qualified, probably will get the job. Um, whereas, you know, if it's China, well, only if you're better than the Chinese that they want to bring in are you going to get the job. And so um, 
I worry about the elimination of, of options in a world. Um, I used to assign my, my students, uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein and Raoul Priebisch, when, when I used to teach this as a grad undergrad course. Um, and it's remarkable to me if one looks at some of the worst accusations that people like Wallerstein made in his world systems theory work about um, you know, the, the metropoles and, and, and the co-optation of, of local elites in the systems. Um, it's remarkably recognizable when one looks at the project and evidence of, of how the Chinese are coordinating efforts to essentially extract and dominate the value added for their companies um, and relegate basically, you know, wage labor and low value added to, you know, those who are working in the, in the periphery. And so, you know, again, um, the United States is, uh, you know, we are intimately connected to the Caribbean by, by family, by geography, by, by, by commerce. And so, um, you know, I worry not just because I'm a gringo and, and want to dominate the Caribbean, but, uh, you know, what happens here affects affects us as well. So sticking with the maritime um, thing for a bit, uh, one of the other recent concerns in the region is actually the illegal Chinese uh, overfishing. So in Ecuador, or off the coast of Ecuador, around the Galapagos uh, Islands area, there's been some fleets of Chinese uh, trawlers that were discovered. Um, I think they're not technically any easy, but I think you can uh, correct me on that. Could could you give some background on what exactly has been going on with that in, in the region? And then, more importantly, how has China responded to these um, claims from Ecuador or uh, Argentina and so on. Absolutely. And it's a great story. And to back it up a little bit, it, it comes out of the transformation of China and increasing Chinese wealth and, and Chinese demand. And so, um, you know, the Chinese people eat a lot of fish in their diet. And with increasing wealth, um, as Chinese fish consumption increased, uh, the Chinese fishing fleets, who really used to concentrate in like places like Bohai and, and else. Uh, other places around Asia, basically overfished and caused the collapse of the majority of those Asian fisheries. And so they kept going out farther and farther abroad. And so um, they began really getting into Africa. Um, and um, as, again, they began to exhaust some of the African fisheries, then they began to go into places like off of the coast of, of Peru and Chile and off of the coast of Argentina. Um, again, you know, looking for continued fish. And what they do is, is they use these uh, enormous trawler ships. Um, one of the things is in order to police fishing, uh, the old model was that fishing ships used to have to come into port. And when they came into port, they could be inspected to see if they were catching illegal types of fish or using the right kinds of nets or, or whether they were over overfishing in terms of, of the amount of their catch. Um, what the Chinese often do, and this has sadly become a, a, you know, a standard, but especially by the Chinese, is to use factory ships. And so the ships will stay out for months and months and months at a time. They become their own separate worlds and they don't go into port. Um, they are resupplied by basically Chinese supply ships, Chinese tanker ships, who will then offload the fish that they've caught and allow them to keep fishing. And so they don't come into port. And so there isn't the reporting accountability. There isn't the legal accountability of, of getting in those waters. But um, it was interesting, the Ecuadorian case, because um, and the reality is that Absolutely, yes, they have been in the the fisheries. Um, now, under basically the, the um, you know, current uh, you know, maritime law, uh, there is an, an expectation that you have basically transponders, uh, so basically you know, ship identifiers, AIS, assist, automatic identification systems. And um, now, technically, it's not criminally sanctioned if you turn it off, but it's suspicious if you turn it off. But if you look at the tracks, the AIS tracks of, of Chinese fishing vessels, they would come right up to, for example, the Galapagos uh, EZ, the you know, special, uh, special zone. Um, and then suddenly the transponder would go off, uh, turn off. And then suddenly the ship would appear magically on the other side of the zone with the transponder on. And so there was actually a study that was commissioned by one of the global fishing organizations using some new technology, which is radar, um, basically a, a radar and, and, and radio detection, which has become enormously sensitive. And then basically taking the blips that they could find on radar and mapping them to the AIS tracks. And so um, recently that that study, which was which was published in the most recent series of, of incursions, actually showed literally hundreds of ships ships, most of which appeared to be Chinese ships inside of the zone. Of course, the, you know, the Chinese uh, uh, embassy in, in Ecuador instinctively you know, denied it, but um, you know, there you had the tracks right, right there. And um, 
It's the same type of thing. So, for example, if you think about um, you know Chile zone, and Chile long ago banned the Chinese fishing fleets for not adhering to local Chilean laws from from coming into the, the Chilean ports. But you know, if you look at how long Chile is, I believe you know five thousand kilometers. It, it's coastline. You know, five thousand kilometers by a two hundred mile EEZ. It's enormous, even for Chile's relatively capable navy. Um, same thing about in Argentina. And so, what would happen is this large quantity. So. For Ecuador, the problem is the Galapagos. I mean, Ecuador has a small navy, and the Ecuadorians were way, you know, again, the Galapagos is, is way out beyond you know, Ecuador. So that was very, very hard for them to constantly keep the, the Chinese fishing vessels out of there. For the Peruvians, for the for the Chileans, um, you know, even monitoring the the fleet again, it was a very hard problem just because of the enormous size. The Argentines have been playing cat and mouse with this for years. So that the Chinese would come, you know, if they were a couple hundred miles away, and they would duck into the EEZ, and you could see them on radar. But by the time the Argentine Coast Guard vessel got there, they would duck back out. Um, there were cases in which, for example, one Chinese ship would basically shield the other while they got out of the EEZ. There's some dramatic chases that you see on YouTube videos. There was an incident when. Mauricio Macri first came in where um, where the Chinese vessel was turning so sharp it actually and it was a you know very very poor shape these ships um, it actually basically capsized and took on water and, and sank everyone said the Argentine ship sunk it but that wasn't actually the case um, you know frankly the Chinese ship you know sunk its shelf but the um, you have other issues because for example where did these ships go in some cases you um, when the ships come all the way around the Pacific and through the Straits of Malacca up the coast of Argentina um, they do get to a certain point where they, they do want to put into port. And so um, there have been a number of cases where they put into port in Uruguay, or for example, in the case of, uh, there was actually a Chinese company, uh, Shandong Baoma, I think it was, that actually wanted to invest billions of dollars to build a major new shipping port. Um, yes, um, it, it was actually eventually vetoed by the Uruguayans that realized what was going on. But so the issue is, um, you know, obviously this would actually facilitate illegal Chinese, you know, fishing in Argentina. But Uruguay gets the port. So Uruguay gets the jobs. And so Uruguay says, we don't know what's happening here. But to the Uruguayans' credit, they they, they vetoed the thing. And there is relatively good cooperation um, when they're politically not fighting between Uruguay and, and, and Argentina. Um, but it's, it's just – and the real problem it's, – it's a problem I think that probably most, you know – artisanal fishers in the Caribbean can, can understand because when you collapse the fisheries, um, it's, you know, the people who are hardest hit are the people who have the little fishing boats who, you know, depend on those fish. And so when the fish go away, you know, you have to go farther and farther out, spend more and more time, less and less catch. It hurts the communities that depend on the fishermen. And so, you know, even when the Chinese are staying outside of the EEZ, they're depleting the same fishery. If they cause the collapse of the fishery with their big trawl nets and things like that, um, then little by little, the local Local communities magically see less and less and less fish showing up, have to go out farther and farther, put, putting their own lives at risk, more time. And so, you know, ironically, it's something that hurts the most vulnerable communities. And, and so I think it's, um, you know, to the credit, I, I think there's been some spotlight and I was very glad to see the spotlight on it. Um, and But the question was that under international law, one of the major states with responsibility for policing their own fishing vessels is who owns the flag. And so, you know, it's the, you know, it's the Chinese flag vessels. And so I think part of this is, you know, trying to, you know, if the Chinese want to say that they're a nation of rule of law, they need to police their own flag vessels and not just say, well, we're not doing it. So, um, so I think there's been some progress because when the Chinese come under pressure, when it begins to cost them in terms of their engagement, the, bad behavior they permit of their countries, um, you do see some moves towards the Chinese to clean up their act because they, they don't want to lose their access. They don't want to lose the broader opportunities. But, you know, sadly, you know, the pressure has to come first before, um, you know, before you get that movement. So it's pretty much common knowledge, I would say, in the Caribbean that our colleagues common understanding that the U.S. doesn't really engage itself that much in the region. And I'm wondering, how do you see this changing? Like, what kind of whole government approach would the U.S. have, have to take? Uh, given that China is going to be doing some more engagement actively, definitely over the next few years, the last decade in the Caribbean when it comes to China has been the most active it has been ever. And it's not going to be slowing down. It's a great question. And... I would start by 
my you know personal feeling that the Caribbean has always been important to the United States, but you know it's kind of like a neglected spouse. Um, you know, oftentimes you know we you know treat it as a domestic issue more than we do a foreign policy issue. We you know oftentimes can be reactive, um, you know, only when there is a problem. But I think if you look at the history for both good and bad, I mean, if you go back to the you know, the Spanish American War, if you go back uh, you know to the U.S. occupation of, of Haiti from nineteen fifteen to nineteen thirty four, if you go back to our sensitivity over the revolution in in Cuba, if you go back to the Dominican Republic nineteen sixty five, if you go to you know President Reagan's initiative with you know the Caribbean Basin Initiative in 1984 that we talked about before, or, you know, again, you know, this president, then Vice President Biden 2010 with the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative. If you look at the degree to which for good or for bad, um, the amount of attention to, for example, Cuba policy, and some people say, well, that's about U.S. domestic policies. But um, I can tell you that within Congress, um, I've worked with, uh, at least interacted, had the privilege of interacting with people, for example, such as, uh, um, you know, ethnically uh, Dominican uh, Congressman uh, Espelat. Um, and it's, it's amazing how much attention the Caribbean gets within the U.S. Congress. And frankly, also, I worked uh, for a year at the State Department. And, um, you know, the, you know, what was going on on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, um, you know, I can tell you that within the Western Hemisphere Affairs, the, the, the Caribbean team, the CAR, um, I you would be, I think, impressed by the level of knowledge and attention and thinking about what to do about things on, on, on a day-to-day you know, basis. And of course, now you have even more factors. I mean, obviously, you have the factor of oil um, you know, in Guyana and Suriname, and you know, of course, previously in, in Trinidad and Tobago. You have you know, the issue of, of China. You have, you know, frankly, Vice President you know, President Biden bringing in his experience. And one of the things to me that's also remarkable about this this new team is you have a vice president, you know, whose father came from Jamaica and, you know, who, you know, represents, you know, and so both the Afro-Caribbean and the Indo-Caribbean, you know, look to, you know, Vice President Harris and, and see. And so I think there's all kinds of, you know, both there's a past of interest, and I think there's a prospect that there's going to be a lot of interest from from this current administration. But when you say what would work um, or what would be important. I think, um, you know, obviously you have to always have good coordination across, you know, the, our folks in the SCO teams that, you know, the military teams and, and the people on the state side on, on the embassy team. Um, you have to have a certain level of, of senior attention. And again, I'm hopeful that we're going to see, you know, even, even more of that. You have to have resources. Again, um, you know, CBSI, unfortunately, sometimes when you get into the political, um, you know, fights for, you know, who gets what in limited resources, uh, you know, sometimes resources come up short. And so, you know, making sure that that sustained commitment of resources is there, frankly, having a coordinated strategy. Um, And I can tell you there actually are strategies, both congressional mandated strategies. We worked strategies at state. Um, You know, oftentimes it's difficult in a chaotic environment to coherently implement those strategies, especially with Congress, the executive branch. But, you know, now we have all parts of government, at least executive and Congress under under the same party. So I think we have increased opportunities for coordination there. Um, And frankly, you also have to have the coordination of the foreign and domestic. So for example, um, you know, a number of years ago, the Dominican gangs, which uh, had basically become empowered in New York, New Jersey, and in other places, um, came back to be a major problem within the Dominican Republic, although that is since abated to a degree. Or in Jamaica, uh, 2011, um, the problem of Tivoli Gardens and Dudas Coke who basically, you know, what was the, you know, cocaine line that he was running? It was actually largely to the Jamaican and, and other Caribbean communities in the Orlando, you know, South, South Florida area. And so, you know, dealing with our own domestic problems and, and domestic issues and tying those to the region with which we, we have these connections, you know, I think, you know, that's an element of, of a coherent policy as well. So um, I'm hopeful that we will see more coherence Um it's always easier to be an armchair person. Um, and, you know, I was sitting in one of the, the, the chairs in the back of the room, I, I, I can tell you. And so I say with a little bit of humility that um, it's it's a heck of a lot easier to talk about how the other person should have done it than it is to, to actually do it when you're in the thick of things. But um, but but I think those are those are the elements. I mean, holy government coordination, resources, strategy, um, you know, foreign domestic coordination. Um, and the other thing I think is particularly important, and I'm hopeful for, with this administration, is coordination with international partners. We have a whole raft of other 
democratic friendly stakeholders, the European Union, the Kingdom of the Netherlands with Aruba, Buonari, Curaçao, their special relationship with, with Suriname, um, the Canadians, the British with the, with the special former relationships through the Commonwealth, the, the French with, with Haiti and, and various other, you know, holdings. We have a, a raft of opportunities to not just say it's it's the U.S. and the Caribbean, but we have a lot of allies that have something to say and in ways that we can all help each other. And so, um, I'm hopeful that that's something that we'll see more of also with uh, with this administration. But um, anyway, those are just some of my thoughts. And my uh, my final question is: Do you have any recommendations for our listeners to either read or watch or listen to? about uh, Caribbean, China, Central America foreign policy? I really appreciate that question. And um, well, with humility, the first part of the answer is, um, you know, one of the most recent pieces that I put out was actually focused on on the Caribbean, um, basically focusing on China and the Caribbean, uh, put out by one of the very good Washington, D.C.-based think tanks, the the Wilson Center. Um, But in terms of a good contemporary book-length treatment, um, my Good friend and colleague and an absolutely amazing intellectual, uh, Dr. Samantha Chaitram, uh, wrote a book called American Foreign Policy in the English-Speaking Caribbean, um, which in my mind is absolutely a must-read for anyone who wants to understand that that relationship. And so uh, Dr. Chaitram, um, I, I received no commission for any book sales, but it is a absolutely great intellectual and very readable uh, work on you know, U.S. policy in the Caribbean. Awesome. So thank you so much, Professor Ellis, for having this conversation. It was really insightful. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much for the opportunity and for for your time. Levantarme. <tose>